Texans, the time has come. So how's it going? Welcome to the Funk Foundation. My name is Jesse Marks and you've just joined us for episode three of our Evolution of Discourse series. So far, we've looked at the gay liberation movement, the nightlife scene which followed, giving birth to the modern DJ and the early formations of Discus, Discus, Disco's signature sound. This episode, we'll look at the genre's boom and how it was catapulted into the mainstream, carrying with it its tropes of escapism, hedonism and celebration. Expect big stories, big names and even bigger records. This is going to be a good one.
Anthem Sister Sledge, Lost in Music, um, who were formed out of four sisters from quite an innocent church background, actually. And that's going to be a theme that will crop up later on in the show. We're going to touch on that because quite a lot of these big artists are actually taken from church and gospel backgrounds. And it really shows in, in, the, um, in the vocal presence of a lot of them. But they were sort of milling about and not really doing much until they were touched with that disco magic of Chic because now Rogers from the band was the guy who produced a lot of their hits. And there's a great quote from him talking about the disco scene, which goes, back in my hippie days, we talked about freedom and individuality, and it was all bullshit. The fact is, you could tell a hippie a mile away. We conformed to our non-conformity. As the celebratory phase of the struggle, disco really was about individuality. The freakier, the better. I know you're going to dig this. And if you were viewed as a freak by the mainstream in the mid-70s, there was no better place for you to go than New York City. Somehow, out of the squalor of the early 70s, the Big Apple began to emit a sparkle about it. Its underground music scene was swelling with raw talent. And between 1970 and 1973, CBGBs had opened up, the loft was welcoming people in through its doors, and DJ Cool Herc had thrown his first block party. And although it could be seen at the time what all this would blossom into, as the ceilings of punk, hip-hop and disco began to germinate, New York's gritty underbelly started to hum with musical creativity.
Bell, music is my way of life. So in 1975, just to put things into context for you, there were over 10,000 discotheques nationwide in the USA, with around 500 of those in New York alone. Numbers had started to boom, and disco was well on its way to blowing up. In New York especially, the scene still had its community of people connected to the genre's core values. And the closer you get to that Greenwich Village sort of loft, gallery, paradise garage vein of innovators, the more influential the stories. And as the techniques and ideas rippled out from these pioneers, the greater the scene became. But as with any other rapid explosion of numbers, as you reach the fringe, things start to get a bit crap, to be honest with you. And anyone with a large space, a lighting rig, and a big sound system realized that rather than pay bands to play covers, it was much more cost-effective to pay a kid with a box of vinyl to blast out the top 40. But in the venues that did it right, it changed people's lives, and to this day, we're still playing 50 years on songs from this era. Now, I'm going to get technical here, but it'll be brief as possible, and I won't go into it too much, but you will never get a sound system like those clubs in the 70s. Vinyl is still the highest fidelity format to record music on. If you just draw a squiggle on a piece of paper and you were to scan it into a computer, if you look at it closely on the screen, you see that it's pixelated. Same concept with sound waves. The more computers that it passes through, the more it takes away. In 1975, something erupted onto these analogue speakers that were in the clubs that would change dance music forever. The 12-inch single. Now, all you need to know is 12 inches is bigger, longer, and thicker. It were misses. But in musical terms, it meant that the grooves could go deeper into the disc, the sound could be louder, more bass, and higher quality. And with that extra space, if you recorded them in such a way, the songs could be longer. And this is the birth of the extended mix, the club mix, the dance mix, the disco mix, whatever you want to call it, that's where it comes from. So if you're going to a club for the first time and you're surrounded by these giant lighting rigs, these huge speakers, everyone's dressed outrageously, your favourite record comes on and it will be louder, longer and in better quality than you've ever heard before. So whilst you're listening to your favourite record in the club, three seconds of your other favourite record gets chopped in at the same time, over the top, because a DJ will be mixing it. And a lot of the techniques that you think about and associate with hip-hop started from disco. So if you weren't at the inception of disco or the idea of the discotheque, when you walked in and saw this full package, you were hooked straight away.
two wedding favourites back to back, Casey and the Sunshine Band. That's the way, uh-huh, uh-huh, I like it. And then before that, Heatwave Boogie Nights, spending 17 weeks at number one in 1976. So as disco started to pick up its momentum, two New York promoters by the names of Steve Rebell and Ian Schrager decided they wanted to increase their involvement in the scene. And looking at the saturation of the market, they set out to create a different kind of discotheque. Now, I'm sure the pair had high hopes, but no one could have predicted the heights that Studio 54 would go on to achieve. And it is widely recognised as one of the most legendary nightclubs ever conceived. But its beginnings are quite humble. Well, they're erratic. Humble might not be the, the right words. In January 1977, set amongst the porno theatres and peep shows of Manhattan, the former college roommates Schrager and Rubel signed the lease on the Gallo Opera House with a view to transforming it into a 2,500 capacity discotheque. Now... On top of the structural and logistical demands of such an operation, the venue also had no liquor license when they got it. Nor did they have it sorted out by the time they opened, and subsequently it was run on a series of temporary catering licenses, which, to be fair, it did allow you to serve alcohol, but it had two stipulations. You had to serve food, and it also had to be applied for every day in person. And at one point, the venue even lost its liquor license completely and had to become a juice bar, meaning it had to serve juice, no alcohol. But as I mentioned before, this club went down as one of the best in history. So how do you get from the one state of affairs to the other? It's on you, pick and choose where you want to go in life. No one said that the road would be paved on smooth and nice. If you want to be a lawyer, I'll just play around all day. Don't be jealous of the fellas who want to go all the way. After all, you're only selling. Nobody but yourself In the end you have to answer To yourself and no one else And every man 
big record for me. This is where my love obsession with this genre, this era started to take form. Double exposure, every man, the Walter Gibbons 12 inch. And it was of such interest to me because it's the original sample for a tune called Sal Sol Nugget by Milk and Sugar. And it's one of the songs that my mum used to play on one of her Ministry of Sound CDs when we're in the house. And it, it that and a number of other tunes used to blast out. Um, I thought at the time that I found it that it was one of these retrospective disco mixes, say like a Dave Lee or a Dimitri from Paris. But as I've got older, I now know that Walter Gibbons was one of the pioneers um, in the world of disco cuts. Many of his arrangements gracing the sound systems of those early influential clubs, Studio 54 being one of them. Now, Rubel and Schrager, I've sort of made them out to be plucky chances, which they were, but they weren't fresh-faced idiots. They've been promoting on the scene for years, and they knew what they wanted to build and who they wanted in their club. Although the paint was still drying on the opening day of Studio 54, the vision would attract some of the biggest names in celebrity culture at the time. Years later, when asked what makes a successful discotheque, Steve Rebell said, Clubs have the same music and the same drinks. All you have to differentiate yourself is the magic you create inside.
Gem for me, that Jackson 5 dancing machine. Love it. That's more Sam's attempt at disco. Right, but back to our story. On the night that the season club promoters Steve Rebell and Ian Strager opened their 2,500 capacity venue, 4,000 people rocked up trained to get in. Studio 54 was a super club in every single way. It cherry picked the best of what a nightclub could be and amplified it by a thousand. The dance floor was literally centre stage of the old opera house and suspended from the ceiling on hydraulics, giant strobe columns would descend in and out of the crowd as part of a state-of-the-art lighting system. Just to the side overlooking the dance floor was the DJ booth, helmed by none other than Richie Couture and the gallery's very own Mickey Ciano. Both of them spinning the latest 12-inch cuts on a tailor-made Richard Long sound system. All of this surveyable from the balcony where the second tier of opera seats used to be. And just what a feeling it must have been to stand there back in its heyday and just see all the chaos unfolding in front of you. Following the media storm created by Bianca Jagger's outrageous birthday party a few days later, Studio 54 was slingshotted into the headlines. But these were just publicity and good investment. As for the aforementioned magic that Steve was talking about, the real key ingredient to the perfect nightclub was in Studio 54's infamous door policy. Who do you let into the best club in the world? 
This is where experience once again came into play, as the very tricky art of exclusivity and inclusivity needed to be played correctly. Let too many of the wrong people in and you ruin the vibe. Let too many of the right people in and it becomes too pompous, too clicky. Thanks to the hype, people would queue up for hours just for a chance to get inside. And as the door pickers would survey the crowd, Rebel, the playwright of the evening, would send demands to the entrance for characters to let into his masquerade. You needed the right mix of hip heterosexuals, outrageous queer energy, wild eccentrics, lashings of the fashion conscious, celebrity glamour paired with a hint of the city's criminal underbelly. And of course, that timeless class transcender, beauty. The question is, once you set the scene and you've assembled the right players, what do you have them do? Original lyrics to that were actually all fuck off. Uh, Grace Jones had put Sheik and now Rogers on the guest list for New Year's Eve. And when the band and Entourage in tour turned up, the names weren't on. So they were all stood there dressed up to nines in the snow, New York City, New Year's Eve, going, Grace Jones put us on guest list. And all lads are like, yeah, sure she did, mate. She put me on as well. <laughs> so anyway, they went home, got pissed, 
wrote that, and then decided, oh, I like that riff, um, changed the lyrics, and that's how the song was written. But Studio 54 would go all out for New Year's Eve and any other event they felt like celebrating. An army of scantily clad waiters, waitresses, dancers and performers would man the club dressed in accordance with whatever theme they had that weekend. But the parties would cost in excess of $10,000, which, to put that in context, is about 80 grand in modern terms, which, yes, you're right, is a suspiciously large amount of money for a venue that sometimes was run on a juice bar licence, to throw on one-off parties every other weekend, but we'll get to that bit later. The celebrity guest list was formidable. Bowie, Jagger, Jack Nicholson, Donna Summer, Cher, John Travolta, Truman Capote, Andy Warhol, Grace Jones, Michael Jackson, Sylvester Sloan, Elton John, Freddie Mercury, Tina Turner, Calvin Klein, Debbie, Harry, Patti Smith, Barbara Streisand, I could go on literally all night. It's absolutely nuts. I'm gonna put some of the photos up on Instagram. Great stuff. But in and amongst the celebrities and the glamour, the chosen few, the beautiful people, the ostentatious and the eccentric, drawn like moths to a flame to strut their stuff out on the floor. If you were fortunate enough to pass through the gates into paradise, the more carnal desires of human nature that come with rubbing up against each other all night to thumping drums were intensified by the free flow of cocaine and quaaludes that passed through the club. The basement was filled with mattresses and the feeling of hedonism was so thick in the air that upon its second refurb, the upper echelons of the balcony was actually covered entirely in a rubber wipe down material to make it easier to clean up after. I mean, I don't really need to explain what was going on in that balcony, you know what I mean? But like, then, then poor cleaners.
It's still a banger though, isn't it? Nobody does sexy disco like Donna Summer does sexy disco. Now, overall, you're probably listening to this part of the story and thinking, what fun. And I don't blame you. But if there's one certainty to life, it's that if something looks fun, the Christian church thinks it's evil and wants it destroyed. So we're going to keep in that Donna Summer theme and pay homage to my favourite subcategory, which is disco artists who had strict gospel choir upbringings, but grew up to sing about lust, sex and desire. This is our forbidden fruit section. gets up we'll all get up it'll be anarchy it's out of my hands sensation 
Lolita Holloway, Love Sensation, the original sample for Black Box Ride on Time. So, the club was a runaway success for our young owners. The tills of Studio 54 were literally overflowing with cash, and it was said that the surplus was bundled into bin bags and then stored in the basement's roof. When Rebel went on radio boasting that the only people who make more money than us is the Mafia, the IRS quickly came knocking. Between 77 and 79, Studio 54 had allegedly grossed around $3 million in profit. Profit, not turnover. In its first year, though, they only played eight grand in corporation tax. When the IRS went through their operation, the purse stood accused of skimming 2.5 million off the top, which is just a ridiculous sum to try and think you're going to get away with. As you can tell, they were by no means master criminals, and the books were actually done by Rebel's mother, and to be fair to her, she did a cracking job. And she was that meticulous that she even marked down several, quote, party favour expenses, which unbeknownst to her turned out to be the cocaine and quaaludes bill for the VIP. Cheers, Mum. Thanks for that. <laughs> it didn't help that when handing over some of the books and records to the IRS, Rebel forgot to take out a five ounce envelope full of cocaine. Hmm. At the time, cocaine was known as the champagne of drugs and its street value was $750 per gram. There's 141 grams in five ounces. The pair were up against tax evasion charges and possession of the intent to supply. Baby, do you understand now? Sometimes I feel a little mad. But don't you know that no life can always be an angel? When things go wrong, I seem to be bad. Cause I'm just a soul whose intentions are good. If I see edgy, I want you to know That I never meant to take it out on you Life has its problems and I've got my share That's one thing I never meant to do Cause I love you, baby Don't you know I'm just human And I've got Oh Lord, don't you let me be misunderstood Don't let me be, don't let me be
bit cheesy that but you just, you can't help but just shake your ass to it can you it's taken from the kill bill soundtrack santa asmerelda don't let me be misunderstood by 1979 disco was a bloated drugged out sold out shell of its former self charged to three and a half years in prison rebel and schrager had signed plea deals grassing on other local nightclub owners for similar practices so on the way out they managed to shut a few other clubs as well with the scandals and the sorry tales of late-night antics attached to newspaper articles about disco landing on the breakfast tables of middle America, the genre seemed to represent everything that was wrong with the country's moral compass. As for the music scene, everyone from the Rolling Stones to James Brown, Aretha Franklin, Rod Stewart was trying their hand at disco. Through 1978, disco singles had been number one for 37 weeks out of 52 that year. In the first half of 79, only three non-disco records managed to make the top of the charts. Amongst those chart toppers were a plague of novelty records as well. If you've got some time, check out Disco Duck or the disco version of the Star Wars theme and you can see where the irritation starts to creep in. As for the crowds inside the discotheques, 1977 saw the release of Saturday Night Fever. For some, a gritty coming-of-age tale about a working-class kid from New York set against a disco backdrop. For others, close to the scene, it was seen as the rallying cry for the vain, self-obsessed pickup crowd to descend on the scene with a complete lack of respect for its roots. In the early years, when the labels came knocking for the DJs, it was the demands of the black, Latino and gay dancer that sculpted the disco sound. In the years that followed, its music, its styles, its ethos and its shared spaces had become a gross misrepresentation of what started it. For the queer community, disco was a vessel in which many big steps had been made, both socially and politically. But corporate America had taken the superficial selling points of the movement and shoved them down the throats of the general public. As things began to fall apart, the media found the perfect villain in Disco's original crowds. And those predisposed to certain prejudices added a sinister undertone to an otherwise natural shift in listening tests. Then I spent so many nights thinking how you did me wrong 
Gloria Gaynor, I Will Survive, anthem released in 1978. The following year, however, would be known for the death of disco. In 1979, Chicago shock jock by the name of Steve Dahl staged a bonfire which broke out into a full-scale riot, encapsulating the mood of the country at the time. The stunt was meant to be a half-time show at a baseball game. If you turned up with a disco record to burn, you got cheap entry. The show was called Disco Demolition Night. A rock DJ, Dahl, his followers, and the wider rock crowd in general saw disco as music made for consumption, and the rise of the DJ took away from the live performance aspect, replacing it with, in their eyes, nonsensical music for people to jerk their body to. And although a lot of the anger towards the by then gaudy, highly commercialised version of the genre could be justified, in and amongst the frustrations, as I mentioned before, were racism and homophobia. It was a well-known fact at the time that disco was a black and Latin genre dominated by women, played by gay DJs, to a hippie crowd. Very much so in the early days, at least. The true motives behind the events that fateful night at Chomsky Park are highly contested. 
But what it ended up as was 50,000 mainly white fans chanting disco sucks and storming the field to surround a burning dumpster of black music, be it disco, funk, R&B or soul. The stewards were overwhelmed and the match was abandoned. The next day, Disco Demolition Night was front page news. And whichever side of the debate you sat, it seemed to be the last nail in the coffin for the genre's cultural dominance at the turn of the decade. In the mainstream, at least. You think yourself so smart, well, you're mistaken. Labels and corporate America had milked disco for all they could get. By the time the general public was sick to the back teeth of the genre, racists and bigots had jumped on the bandwagon to stigmatise the music. And as the 70s came to a close, a transition was taking place. Punk's decimation of rock and roll had created space for new ideas and bands to take the scene forward. And hip-hop felt the first bitter sting of commercial exploitation when rappers' delight hit the charts. The scene's clothes, artwork and dancing would soon follow. 
the next big things had arrived and the labels shifted their attention as the money fell out of disco. Now Rogers was quoted as saying the phone stopped ringing overnight, but there were still some whose first contact with disco wasn't through the movies, the bell bottoms, the adverts and the celebrity scandals. Those who'd found sanctuary and belonging in venues run by people with a vision. Next episode, we look at what came next and how the genre evolved to take over the world. It's the episode that you guys asked for and one that's very close to my heart. The Paradise Garage and the legend of Larry Levan. So please join us for the final installment of our Evolution of Disco series. See you next time. (laughs) 